The Story of Gumbatar, Episode 4 The Paperwork The moment he returned from the crisis meeting, the Minister of Agriculture summoned five of his staff to his office on the top floor. They were all young men. Four of them were the sons of rich, powerful families in the capital city. The fifth was Gambatar. Mongolia had the world's second communist revolution and had closely followed the Soviet model ever since. Power was centralized and jealously guarded by the party. Study abroad was a rare and precious privilege and the power to allocate this precious resource reaped rich rewards in the form of favors and bribes. The minister's calculations had started the moment the president suggested sending five of his brightest young staff to Russia to study fish farming. He was already doing very nicely from the sinecures he'd given the sons of five of the capital's richest families and saw this as a great opportunity to double down. By the time his limousine had finished the short trip, however, he'd made one minor compromise give four of the scholarships for this crazy scheme to the princeling playboys, but it would be prudent to send at least one person who wasn't going to treat it as some kind of holiday. Professor Dalai's crazy schemes had a habit of petering out once the party started implementing them, and this fish farming idea was the craziest yet, but better send at least one person with half a brain, just in case. He told the driver to wait at the entrance and that he'd be back down in half an hour. What's the name of that country boy who just arrived last year? He asked his secretary as he strode into his top floor office. Ah, yes, Gambatar, the boy from the lake. A few minutes later, Gambatar was one of the five young men standing in front of the minister's desk, hands behind their ramrod backs. The minister informed them of their strange but solemn task, swore them to strain every sinew for the benefit of the nation, fed them some browsing rhetoric about being the new Mongol horseman following in the stirrups of Chinggis Khan, and then told them to start packing their bags. The president's order had been very public, and it would be prudent to be seen to take swift action. Another short limousine ride, and the minister was exchanging a bear hug with his good friend, the Soviet ambassador. The ambassador had already heard the news and was delighted at the chance to put Mongolia even further in his nation's debt. He'd prepared five application forms, pre-signed and pre-approved, a prospectus from Russia's top institution for the study of all things fishy, and a litre bottle of what he knew was the minister's favourite vodka. A couple of toasts to the eternal fraternal bond of their two great nations, then the minister was back in his office. By now, his secretary had already gone home, so rather than delay a moment longer, the minister thought he'd fill out the forms himself. How hard could it be? To steady himself, he unscrewed his gift and poured himself a generous measure before starting on the first application form. When the minister's secretary arrived the next morning, he was surprised to find the minister's office door, which he remembered locking the evening before, open. He was about to call the security guard in the corridor when he noticed the minister was at his desk. He was in a deep sleep, slumped over a spread of forms, an empty vodka bottle at his elbow. Weeks later, the minister, now sober, posed for the photographer from Mongolian Pictorial Magazine. He stood on the steps of the Ministry of Agriculture, looking as presidential as he dared. 
On either side stood his five soon-to-be aquaculturalists. Gambatar was the extra body, and he only just made it into the frame. The photographer knew no rich and powerful parents would complain and made sure his four colleagues were shown in the best possible light. Then the minibus arrived to take them to the train station and their cross-continental odyssey began. Over the next weeks, without once crossing the sea, they traveled halfway across the world, days chugging across the familiar Mongolian steppe. Then what seemed like weeks trundling through the interminable forests of Siberia. Then, in faster trains, they sped through Moscow and beyond. They gawked through the windows, transfixed, as more cities and more buildings and more people and more vehicles than they thought possible flashed past. It had been days since they'd last seen a horse. Below the horizon was neither green nor white, but grey. By the time the five young men reached the Baltic port city with the Soviet Union's biggest institute for the study of all things fishy, they felt like they'd stepped off the edge of the world. The slate-grey sea stretched to the horizon like a nightmarishly turbulent grassland. The air tasted of salt and smelt of something unfamiliar and overpowering that they could only assume was fish. The next day, the five young Mongolians reported to the institute. It was matriculation day for the entire university and the vast sports hall was heaving with snaking queues of students from across the Soviet Union and beyond, waiting for their turn to hand in their documents and receive their student IDs. The five young men located the queue for foreign students and took their places, Gambatar at the rear. Word soon got round that five Mongolians had shown up, and this, of course, was a first for this particular institution. They shuffled forward, clutching their briefcases containing their application forms, passports and ID photos to their chests. These five young men from the land of the horse attracted many glances, some stares and a few sniggers. All they could do was smile hesitantly back and wish the queue would move faster. At last, they reached the front of the queue. History was made as the first Mongolian student presented his documents to the Ministry of Education bureaucrat who solemnly accepted them. He then proceeded to shuffle the papers and scrutinize each word, peering down his nose with his head tilted back. As his excruciating examination extended, more and more people nudged their neighbors and pointed towards the five dark-skinned, red-cheeked Mongolians waiting in line. Eventually, the official thumped a red stamp on the form. With neither a look nor a word, he handed the documents back. With one arm, he beckoned the next Mongolian forward, and with the other pointed to a group of young men standing under a sign saying, Course number 1013, fish farming. The first of Gambatar's princeling colleagues stuffed his documents back into his briefcase and hurried to join them, as if fearing the official might change his mind. One by one, the painful process was repeated until only Gambatar was left. He clicked open his briefcase, set his wolf's paw to one side, and presented his documents. The same painful procedure. Shuffle, peer, thump, beckon, point. But he wasn't pointing towards his fellow Mongolians. The official was pointing to the next group along, the one standing under the sign saying, course number 1012, deep sea navigation.
In episode 5, The Studies of Gunbatter, we discover how this bureaucratic error was resolved. The series was written, narrated and produced by Sternwriter. Audio production by Samuel Wynn. The Truth Lies in Bedtime Stories is a see-through news production. See-through news is a not-for-profit social media network with the goal of speeding up carbon drawdown by helping the inactive become active. For more, visit seethroughnews.org. Thank you for listening.